Hi, everyone. I'm Michael Calori, and you are listening to the Gadget Lab podcast. I am back from snorkeling in the mountain lake region of Tahoe, California slash Nevada. Anyway, um, I'm here in the studio joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Ariel Pardes. Hello. And Lauren Good. Hello. I think you're the first person I've ever heard say you were snorkeling in the winter in Tahoe. Yeah. Well, you know, it's extremely cold. I thought it would be like kind of a fun joke. To think mm. of like somebody going up to Tahoe in the middle of February to snorkel. Snorkel? Yeah. So you didn't snorkel. No. So you started this podcast with false information. Yeah. But everyone should continue listening. Yeah. Really. It gets better, I swear. <laughs> and if we learned anything this week, it's that a person who's once a liar isn't necessarily always a liar. <laughs> or a person who lies is by definition a liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Oh, really depends on your perspective. Really does. Oh, my goodness. You're talking about Michael Cohen, I presume? Oh. And not me? Yeah. No, yes, the other Michael. Okay. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. This is not a podcast about politics. It's a podcast where we take you through technology news and what happened this week. And we break down the gadgets, the apps, and the services that you need to know about. Uh, the show is not just about gadgets. It's about our relationship with them and how they impact our lives. That's right. And it's not just about our lives as journalists and tech consumers. It's also about how technology is changing the lives of frontline workers and warehouse workers and people in construction and in design and even in the military. And we're going to talk a lot more about that later in the show because we have a special guest this week. That's right. Alex Kipman, who is a technical fellow at Microsoft. That's actually his title, but he's better known as the inventor of Connect and also works on HoloLens. He sits down with us in the Gadget Lab this week to talk about the new HoloLens. Hey. Yep. And he talks about Microsoft's vision for mixed reality. Now, we taped this last month at Microsoft's headquarters in Redmond, Washington, but HoloLens 2 wasn't announced yet at the time that we taped, and now it is. So we're going to run the podcast for you. That is very exciting. Before we get to... Alex, let's go through the news of the week. Yes. Okay. So if you're on Amazon at all these days, you might notice two things. One being that Amazon's own products seem to increasingly be showing up near the top of your search results, even if you're not searching for Amazon branded products like Amazon Basics or things like that. That's right. Amazon controls its website. And um, that's really not great for other people who are trying to list on Amazon. But anyway, the second thing is that you might come across an item that doesn't look quite right or seems too good to be true. And that's because it might be a fake. Amazon has a very real counterfeit problem. So on Thursday this week, the company said that it was launching a new effort called Project Zero that lets brands sign up to help flag and actually remove fake products themselves. So if you're a brand and you suspect or you see that someone has produced an item that looks uncannily like yours and is using some of your, I don't know, your branding in some way, you can actually remove it. But it's still pretty small right now, this Project Zero initiative. Right now it's invite only. And it seems like in some ways Amazon is kind of shifting people from the roles of active fake spotters to people who now have to monitor the brands who want to be counterfeit spotters. But it also sounds like the company is using some new automated tools as well. And at the very least, it could probably earn some goodwill among more established sellers on the site. Now, all this comes less than a year after The Atlantic published a pretty comprehensive report about Amazon's counterfeit goods problem. And it's also been acknowledged elsewhere as well. Uh, and that's because, well, really, times have changed. I mean, relative to e-commerce, it used to be fairly easy to spot a counterfeit when you were in a store in real life. Uh, but the rise of Amazon and eBay have ushered in not only convenience and a valuable secondhand market, but also a lot of fakes on the internet that are hard to track down. And Amazon has faced plenty of lawsuits from both big and small companies who say Amazon hasn't done enough to take care of this problem. So part of this Project Zero initiative might be Amazon trying to take care of things. What do you guys think about this? I think it's interesting that the the initiative seems mostly geared toward brands um, who are trying to prevent other sellers from copying their products, which is a very real problem, as you said, um, but seems a little bit dissociated from the problem that consumers have in trying to determine what is real and what is fake when buying on Amazon. Um, I know one of our colleagues here at Wired recently had a snafu where she bought a bottle of Diva Curl shampoo off of Amazon and uh, got sent to the office and she was like, wait a minute, I don't know if this is the legit Diva Curl. Like, it doesn't have the seal that it's supposed to have. And it's because she bought it from a third-party seller. Um, 
who may or may not have been selling the correct precious curl shampoo. Um, so I think it's I think it's interesting. I wish they were going one step further though to sort of uh, help consumers make the right choices um, and prevent counterfeiting in that way as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess if they remove enough counterfeit items from the site, then your likelihood of stumbling upon a, fa- a counterfeit good and purchasing that goes down because the inventory just isn't there. Mm-hmm. But you're right. This seems aimed at appeasing the brands who are very angry at Amazon for not providing a safe platform on which they can sell their goods and sell them as they rightfully make them. Um, and it seems like, yeah, it's it's it, in some ways, you know, introducing this system could help Amazon because it means either between putting some of the responsibility on the brands themselves and using the automated tools. It could come back, cut back on the number of human workers who have to 24-7 monitor these counterfeit goods on Amazon. Yeah, it's also, I mean, if you buy something off of Amazon and it ends up being fake, then it's it sours you on Amazon. So mm-hmm. it would certainly help them in the long run, too. Well, speaking of buying things, um, Mike, uh, how much Bitcoin do you have left? Uh, I have about $47,000 in Bitcoin. Nice, Which nice. is like seven Bitcoin. <laughs> um, well, it might be time for you to cash that in for something better. Okay. I am talking about the future of cryptocurrency, which will come not from anarchists of the internet, but instead from companies like Facebook. Oh, I like how you say Facebook are not anarchists. <laughs> it's really nice. Uh, the New York Times reported this week that um, Facebook, along with companies like Telegram and Signal and Line, are each planning to roll out their own cryptocurrencies in the coming year. Grown. Um, the idea here is that um, I could buy, say, some Facebook coin, and then I could send that to Lauren through WhatsApp, and this would be different than um, making a transaction through my bank or through Bitcoin or through PayPal or anything like that. Um, so we're kind of scant on the details here. The New York Times broke the story with some sources that were unnamed, um, but Facebook as a company has been very tight-lipped about what it's working on. Um, so I think right now one of the main questions is the degree of independence that something like Facebook coin might have from Facebook itself. The whole idea of cryptocurrency is that it's decentralized, right? So Bitcoin doesn't work like PayPal or Venmo because it doesn't have a central authority behind it. Um, so it's clear right now that Facebook is looking to move into financial services, not so clear what degree of, uh, ownership it's going to take over that or what exactly it will look like. Um, and maybe also not clear how much people want to buy into something like that. Given the past (laughs) couple of years at Facebook, I think the idea of, um, getting into the financial market makes some people a little squeamish. Yep. It's also, I mean, you know, you're, you have the potential that like I'm paying you money that uh, could be devalued tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That's a little weird. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To me, this is this is part of a larger trend of all of the big tech companies, not all, but most of them, the giant ones that we follow, all um, looking to the next big market that they could possibly take over, capitalize on. You know, for Apple, that may be health, getting deeper into health, but Apple is also getting deeper into finance. There was a report last week that the company may be working on a credit card with Goldman Sachs. Uh, For Facebook, that's obviously establishing itself as a kind of de facto decentralized bank for its billions of users around the world. Um, You know, Microsoft is no longer just interested in making productivity software. It's it's touting its cloud services. It's a cloud company. Uh, And so you look at all of these companies that are just kind of staking their claim in the next big area. And um, for better or worse, I think it makes sense that Facebook would look to money, the exchange of money as one of the things that could uh, keep it effectively in power over our lives. Indeed. Oh, goodness. Indeed. What's funny is at the um, the time that I think New York Times also had reported that Facebook was looking to put its the back end. What was it? it I'm trying to think of the word. Basically, take the back end of all of its messaging services and and fuse them. Right. Mm -hmm. So that if you were messaging somebody on Messenger, but that person wasn't on Messenger, but they were on WhatsApp, they would still get it. Right. That's that's right. And then Facebook ended up addressing that in its earnings call shortly afterwards. But at the time, there was a former Facebook employee who tweeted that he believed this was part of a crypto play. And now it seems to all be coming a little bit more into a clearer picture. Buy that man a donut. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he can't afford it with his old Facebook stock. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> For sure. All right. The last thing in the news is an important announcement. 
If you are a parent of a child who has access to the internet, like if your kid watches a lot of YouTube or spends a lot of time in chat apps, then you should be on high alert for the Momo Challenge. This is a new threat to kids on the internet where a creepy character named Momo encourages them to perform tasks that put their health at risk, like swallow bottles of prescription pills or start a fire in the kitchen, uh, maybe, you know, cut each other with scissors, really nasty stuff. In some cases, Momo will encourage a child to harm their classmates or even themselves. Momo communicates these tasks to children via messages over WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger or by popping up in otherwise innocent-seeming videos on YouTube Kids. So parents, beware the Momo Challenge. Or don't, because Momo isn't real. There is no Momo Challenge. It's yet another viral hoax intended to create hysteria among parents. And much like similar hoaxes in recent memory, like the Tide Pod Challenge, that was a fun one, or the Condom Snorting Challenge, which I still don't understand, there is no actual threat out there. People just said kids are being tricked into doing these outlandish things in order to stir up shit and frighten parents. And, you know, for lulls, as one does. (laughs) The Momo hoax isn't even new. Uh, It first surfaced last year in the UK and Latin America, and when it started spreading through totally credulous news reports on television and on the web, the image that was associated with Momo was a ghoulish sort of bird-like woman with bulging eyes and stretched out grinning mouth. That image likely worked to scare parents even more because it's super creepy. Yeah, it's straight it's out of the unbelievably yeah. creepy. Yeah. Very, very creepy. As fears about Momo spread across the U.S. this week, the hip kids on the internet went to work debunking it. Uh, there's a bunch of stories you can read out there of people saying, don't worry, it's not real. YouTube even chimed in on Wednesday, probably after getting pinged by dozens of tech journalists. They released a statement calling the Momo challenge bogus and saying that videos, quote, videos encouraging harmful and dangerous challenges are clearly against our policies. The Momo challenge included. Despite the press reports of this challenge servicing, we haven't had any recent links flagged or shared with us from YouTube that violate our community guidelines, end quote. So it's a total hoax. Of course, the irony here is that the Momo challenge um, is something that parents should not be worrying about, but something that they should be worrying about is all of the various threats and harassment that their kids face online. And they should be paying closer attention to what their kids are doing when they go hide in their rooms with their iPads. But of course, we're not talking about that. We're talking about Momo, which doesn't exist. So this was a hoax that started on the Internet by someone sharing this photo um, and attaching all kinds of beware parents language to the post about other things on the Internet that did not exist on the Internet. So even though nobody had, in, in theory, no one had actually seen a Momo video pop up on YouTube. Right. That it's still people believed it. People were like, "Yes, this is on YouTube. Yes. Beware." Yes, and you Wild. know, of course, there are news reports out there of kids who like, "I cut my little sister's hair off, and Momo told me to do it." Well, that's because somebody saw the hype around the Momo challenge. Some kid saw it and then thought it would be funny if they used that to convince some other kid to do something terrible like cut off their Mm -hmm. sister's hair or Mm -hmm. whatever, you know? So it's like the self-perpetuating sort of that's, that's how the hoax works. It's self-perpetuating just like the Tide Pod challenge. People were actually swallowing Tide Pods because they were daring each other to, because they thought it'd be funny because their stupid parents were falling for it. So it's obviously something that's funny. But this seems to be bigger than Tide Pods in the sense that this speaks to our trouble with veracity on these platforms. Because the thing yeah. is, is that last week on the show, we were just talking about how pedophiles have created a wormhole on YouTube, basically, where they're able to communicate with each other and code signal to each other. And um, they're in comments, you know, and and like stuff that parents probably might not see yeah. in some cases, but that it, but it is real and it does exist on yeah. YouTube. And YouTube has had to address that. Right. So I guess I could see how someone would say, well, I personally haven't seen the Momo thing on YouTube or <laughs> seen my child watching it, but it could exist somewhere. There's so much stuff. How could you possibly know? I think the best advice for parents is um, just keep your kids off YouTube. <laughs> Whether Momo is real, whether Momo is fake, whether it exists on the platform or not, like, just be safe. Just don't let your kids watch YouTube. Every parent who's listening to this right now is saying, oh, honey. (laughs) (laughs) 
Right, right, yeah. In the 70s and 80s, it was like, just don't let your child watch TV. It's oh, rotting their brains. You know, I was actually thinking about this. Like, this reminds me a lot. When I was when I was growing up in the in the 1980s, there was this this whole thing about how Judas Priest albums and Ozzy Osbourne albums had secret messages encoded in them. And if you played oh, them right. backwards, you could hear satanic messages that would command children, your children, to commit suicide and perform acts of violence on each other. It's the original Momo. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like this, you know, this goes all the way back to like, you know, well, obviously there's a lot of political stuff and, and misogyny around witch hunts, but it's the same kind of thing where it's like you create hysteria so that you can, you know, get something out of it on the other side. Um, you know, in the in the case of like heavy metal music, it was just that it led to degenerate behavior. Like kids who were into heavy metal usually were also like smoking pot and cutting school and, you know, talking back to their parents and, you know, sneaking out at night and going off in the fields to do whatever. And that's like, you know, if you don't want to encourage that and you have to come up with some way of keeping the kids from engaging in that activity. So the best way to do that is to raise hysteria around parents. Now, I'm not saying there's some sort of like weird, you know, altruistic wave behind the Momo challenge where, you know, oh, you need to be more careful about what your kids are doing online and you're ignoring that very real problem. So we're going to scare the bejesus out of you with this creepy bird woman with bulging eyes <laughs> that's telling your kid to go set start firing the kitchen um but you know it's just everything old is new again yeah <laughs> but also kids are i mean it's similar to the tv thing but it's different because kids are carrying these devices with them everywhere yeah they're watching video for hours and hours a day some study show yeah and uh you know, TV, it used to be the kind of thing, like, I don't know if, I was just, because I've been reading Michelle Obama's book, she talks about how she grew up um, friendly with Jesse Jackson's daughter, and, and how Jesse Jackson was, like, on his his campaign to, like, get parents to not let their kids watch TV. She's like, turn off the TV for two hours a night and do homework, right? But that was a, it was kind of a finite resource then. It's like, you could only watch TV for a certain number of hours, and then you had to go to school, or you'd be outside, or something oh, like that. Well, I thought that. you were going to say, because there's nothing on. No, well, that too. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, now they're like a thousand channels. But, but I mean, you could just watch, you could watch these videos anytime now. Yep. Anytime. And what kids really should be doing instead of spending time on YouTube is listening to Judas Priest albums. Yeah, ju- backwards. <laughs> Satanic messages. Uh, well, Lauren. Yes. Earlier this month, Momo told you to go to Seattle to visit Microsoft and see the new HoloLens headset. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I set the place on fire. <laughs> They were not pleased. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a new HoloLens out. It was formally unveiled at Mobile World Congress, excuse me, MWC, MWC. as it's now called, yes. in Barcelona earlier this week. We were not there on the ground because we had gotten the story in advance. I did go to Redden, Washington, saw the HoloLens. I spoke to the designers behind it. I spoke with Alex Kitman, who you're about to hear from shortly. The new HoloLens is undoubtedly an advancement in technology. If you were to look at it really quickly, you'd probably say, eh, okay, it looks like the same headset as before. It's still a headset. It's still pretty geeky looking. How, how long ago was the first one? The first one was 2016. Mm-hmm. But it had been in development for many years before then. In fact, Kipman likes to say that um, it really started with the development of Kinect because mm-hmm. a lot of the sensor package, you know, or the sensor the technology ended up in, in HoloLens. But the HoloLens 2 is lighter than the first one. It's more comfortable to wear because it's been designed differently. It has this new type of imaging technology, this patented optics module. Uh, it's using something called MEMS, which is micro uh, microelectric mechanical systems, which is not a new field in the world of mechanical systems, but it's something that Microsoft <laughs> is using now. They're using these tiny little mirrors, basically, to control the angle of the field of view, which means a bigger field of view. And then because Microsoft talks a lot about cloud and edge these days, ever since Satya Nadella took over as CEO five years ago, they talked a lot about cloud and edge, a lot about like Azure, right? Because Azure is an increasingly important part of Microsoft's business. And so everything's got to collect, connect to the cloud now. Wow, it's like, I'm just, it's like Microsoft buzzwords. It's like <laughs> connect or connect. Connect with a K or connect with a C. Azure, cloud, but anyway. Uh, so here's the thing. Microsoft claims 
that they're not going to hype this device. And they didn't hype the first one, and they're not going to hype this one because they believe that truly transformative technologies aren't hyped. That's not necessarily true. I remember a lot of hype around the launch of the first HoloLens. But one thing that is true is that Microsoft does seem to be a little more focused about who this is for and the kind of customer that they're ultimately building this for and the kind of applications they want to see running on it and what they see the benefit um, being to like running AI processes on your head. Mm-hmm. So that's something I got to talk to Alex about. So let's have a listen. I'm speaking with Alex Kipman here at Microsoft in Redmond, Washington, and I've just taken a look at the new version of HoloLens, HoloLens 2. I'm going to continue my conversation now with Alex. We were just chatting earlier, but um, for the sake of your listening pleasure. So thanks to everybody for joining us. Alex, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Okay, so I'm going to move this microphone between us. And um, if you, if any of you hear any room noise, that's because there are people working here. They didn't just turn Microsoft into my podcast studio for the day. Um, so we were just talking a little bit about HoloLens 2 and how one of the things that you've said frequently throughout the day today is this idea that it's more intelligent now because it's running in the cloud, it's operating in the cloud. What does that mean exactly? Because the first version of HoloLens was also connected to the internet, obviously. That's a great question. So yes, HoloLens 1 is is fully internet connected. Um, HoloLens 2 remains fully internet connected. Um, perhaps a better way to describe it um, is to say that HoloLens 2 was designed from the ground up to um, essentially come alive or light up when it comes in contact with Azure. Azure is Microsoft's uh, intelligent cloud. And uh, with HoloLens 2, um, although there is no requirement that it attaches to the Azure cloud, when the two things come together, um, new magic happens. For example, we run a state-of-the-art, industry-defining artificial intelligence on HoloLens. This was true for HoloLens 1. This was true for HoloLens 2. But because they run on battery, And because they run on HoloLens, um, you are doing things where you think in milliseconds, um, where in a sense you're trying to calculate an eye movement, a couple of milliseconds. You're trying to put a hologram on top of a table, a couple of milliseconds. But for a lot of experiences, example, you're trying to calculate a physics simulation over the entire world. Um, milliseconds is not a requirement. If this took, you know, for example, three, four, five seconds for you to be able to recalculate the physics of the world, it's not a big deal. Um, so what we've done with HoloLens 2 is, is partitioned a lot of our workloads um, between HoloLens and in our Azure cloud to say, hey, the device fully works uh, in offline um, or, or connected to, to anywhere else with the level of precision you would expect in an industry-defining um, device like HoloLens. But when you couple it um, with the Azure cloud, you just get a bunch of new workloads that open up. Tend to think about those workloads as just being um, big, bigger search spaces or more precise versions. Um, the example I used this morning um, to share with your with your uh, podcast folks is, you know, take spatial mapping, the, the ability we have to measure um, the place you're in to place a hologram on top of it. HoloLens has the most precise spatial mapping in the industry, and it gives you about one centimeter of precision, plus or minus one centimeter when you're looking at any object in the real world. This is still true with HoloLens, too, and it's still industry-defining it. But if you're willing to wait a second, and connect to our Azure cloud, one centimeter precision becomes one millimeter precision. So the Uh, customer ends up sacrificing just a little bit of time, there's a little bit of latency in exchange for something that ends up being more precise in the headset. That's exactly correct. And in this case, the customer would be the developer, right? So these are ultimately things that are transparent to an end customer using an experience. And what this enables is tool set for our developers um, to be able to, within their experiences, make those trade-offs um, to create brand new experiences that we haven't seen in anybody else's platform or experience. It seems like you've made three pretty solid advancements with HoloLens 2. One is the optics. It has a wider field of view. And a lot of people said around the launch of the first one that they felt that the field of view was a limitation. The second is comfort. You've taken some of the weight that was very front-loaded in the front of someone's head and you've kind of split it up. So some of the weight's in the back now and some is in the front. And uh, there's a third one too. And I'm trying to think of what it is. You did optics, out, you did comfort, and then you did... What was out the of the box value. And, okay, what you call out of the box value, which sounds like 
very, very good wording if you're trying to sell to enterprise clients, which you are. Okay, so, but also, you know, developers are gonna be very interested in this as well. Of those three things, what would you say is the most, the absolutely most important advancement with HoloLens 2? To be honest, it's all three. Like we don't think about one being more important than 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 the others. Um, and that's what makes the problem incredibly fun and incredibly difficult. Um, for example, if I thought that immersion, which is to field of view, uh, is the most important thing, we can create something with infinite immersion. It's just really, really large and really, really uncomfortable. I can create something super comfortable that you can't even feel in your head. It's just not going to be very immersive. Um, to create something that really pushes forward immersion and really pushes forward comfort requires a ton of innovation. And doing those things together is what makes um, HoloLens 2 uh, um, such a, a, a leap forward in, in holographic computing. And then equally, at the end of the day, um, in as much as I'm a developer and I love developers and, 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 and that's a fantastic world, if you buy this product, if, you, if you're trying to experiment or get value out of mixed reality for your daily life and you buy one of these products and it takes you months to get to that value, if you then need to contract a, a shop of developers if you don't have them to go be able to get to that value, the next thing you know, it both takes time and it takes money for you to be able to say, yes, I'm going to go uh, bet on mixed reality. Right, you'd have to build out a whole business unit for your holographic That's processing right. unit. That's um, right. So in a, in, mm-hmm. not reasonable, right? Right. Um, so for us, it's really all those three things. And we held ourselves um, accountable to making sure that until we were able to say we double the immersion, until we're able to say that we triple the comfort, until we're able to say that we took months worth of time to value and made it into minutes, that we weren't going to ship this product. And we had ourselves to that standards and to those bars. And all three of them are very meaningful and, and very hard to achieve. How would you describe the market for mixed reality and augmented reality mm-hmm. right now? I mean, it's certainly, it's not mainstream. Mm-hmm. And, and we at Wired are lucky enough in that we get to see a lot of these heads-up displays and smart glasses and try them. I just tried another pair of this the past few weeks. Um, this startup out of Canada, you know, made really interesting smart glasses. And we saw a bunch at CES earlier this year. But the reality is that these mixed realities are not quite there yet. And I'm wondering where you see the market right now. And I'm wondering what you think it will take to push that over the, I'm going to say this word again, the edge. I've heard the word edge many times today. <laughs> over the edge. I think that's a great question. And, and again, you know, I think for any new secular trend in computing, in a sense, one of the key things to, to keep in mind is you need to be strategically patient, right? Um, we've all seen these technologies that go through these hype cycles, right? And everybody thinks that overnight is going to take over the universe, which then immediately gets you into a trough of disillusionment because it doesn't do that. And then everybody believes, oh, my God, this thing is never going to happen. Um, And then some things eventually find escape velocity and and get to the other side of the chasm. And in a sense, anything that's attempting, auditioning for the part to become a new era in computing can be any one of those um, three things. It could be a hype cycle. Maybe it's just hype. Maybe it's not going to go anywhere. Um, Perhaps sometimes it's just a niche um, cycle. It's something that will find its place in very meaningful, good business in a segment, but it's not going to... Um, take over computing. And then there's mm-hmm. some things that are transformative that really do um, live side by side with other eras of computing um, and push forward both democratization of technology and innovation in technology to an order of magnitude from where things are. I believe mixed reality is that, um, but you know we haven't and we're not going to overhype it. Um, this is not something that we didn't position HoloLens 1, we didn't position HoloLens 2 um, as a consumer product, for example. We're focusing where there's value. Where there's a ton of value right now is in enterprise, uh, particular focus in enterprise in first-line worker scenarios. Um, if you think about you and I, we sit in front of desks all day, we're knowledge workers. Turns out we're the minority of the world. The majority of the world does not sit in front of desks all day. And a lot of these jobs are being digitally transformed um, things are becoming more complex. There's much more need to travel around the world than any number of things like that. Now, mixed reality in those cases 
um, transforms things. These are places where technology is not really that great. Um, if you're trying to be an employee of Japan Airlines fixing a jet propulsion engine on the airplane, you know, trying to get that instruction with a phone or a tablet or a PC is not really that great. Um, on the other hand, having a mixed reality headset on and being able to be heads up, hands free fixing that, to be able to call that Rolls Royce engineer um, from England to come help you and have you teleport instead of have to travel and spend time away from his family or her family. Those are all things where now all of a sudden, with all of this digital transformation, with all of this data going to the cloud and AI being predictive of the future, where now these devices become the output um, part of that. And mm -hmm. that's where we're focused. Mm -hmm. I often uh, think about, what you, to your point, what you said earlier about um, this idea, and this might have been before we started recording, this idea that every 30 years there's this kind of major evolution in what's going on in technology. I think if you were to walk into a room of the press 30 or 50 years ago and saw a bunch of people crouched over looking at what looked like light boxes on their laps, your mind probably would have been blown. Like, mm -hmm. like what what is this technology that people are using, right? Um, you know, and so I wonder if in some not so long, you know, not so distant time from now, we'll all be wearing some type of face computer and it'll just seem totally natural. Or to your point, if it ends up being part of a hype cycle. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's really hard to tell right now, especially technology that goes on the body, which is such a personal thing. Um, I agree. And at the end of the day, you know, you, what, what you finish is perhaps the most important part of that equation, which, you know, you think about the premium of putting compute um, on a human. Right, and you think about the premium of the value you need to get before you're willing to um, go put something on your face. Take normal glasses, forget digital stuff. Um, if you go from being not being able to see well the world to being able to see the world, you're like, okay, I'm willing to go put something on my face. Um, so you have to think about, you know, what is it that you're getting uh, out of putting technology anywhere on the human, but like, look, the head is a, is a very uh, expensive real estate for the human, in a sense. You have to do a lot before you're willing to go put something on your head, right? So that's where, for example, um, we, don't, we don't spend any time with very lightweight notification things on your head. There's a lot of people, and I'm not trying to, to be pro or against that space, but man, you know, um, a lot of that information can also show up on your wrist, Right, And if a human had to, sh to think through, for lightweight notifications, would I choose to give up real estate in my body, on my head, or on my wrist? I imagine the wrist is a much less premium place where people are way more comfortable you know, uh, uh, flicking to their wrist to see that information. Which is why on a device like HoloLens, um, we focus on a much more immersive, uh, much more interactive experience. And, and we simply focus that where things that you cannot do uh, without the technology, right? And there's the belief statement that, and we're finding that, that, that value um, in the enterprise customers that are working with us. Have you already started working on HoloLens 3? We have, um, as a matter of fact, HoloLens 4 as well. Um, back to the different componentries of all of this, right? Um, when you're innovating from custom silicon all the way up to the services, think about the different time scale that those things happen. If you're in a service, Right, one of the AI components of HoloLens that runs in the cloud. You really think about those things as as revving per hour. Like every hour, you can go get a new model of something. Um, as you start going down, if you start thinking about applications that run on HoloLens, um, they usually rev about once a month. As you start going to an operating system, you start thinking about twice yearly. As you start getting to optics and custom silicon, you start thinking 24, 36 months. Right. So when you look across the board. And we're not working on services for HoloLens 4 right now, but a lot of the components um, and pieces of innovation, as you start looking at it at any point in time, just do simple math, right? If we're shipping every two years-ish, that's HoloLens 1 to HoloLens 2, mm -hmm. and it takes on the longest lead item five years to go create, at any point in time, you do need to have um, a lot of these things um, working in parallel. So what does that look like? What, is, what you know, I know you probably don't want to give specifics on the product roadmap, although if you did, we're totally open to it. But like, what you know, what does that actually look like five years from now when the next Hololens ships? Is it something much less noticeable, much lighter? Is it? Like, I'll give what? you my entire roadmap. I okay. have no secrets. Okay, great. Uh, we have time. It's super simple. Every single turn of the crank, you'll find that the device is going to become meaningfully more immersive, 
meaningfully more comfortable and have meaningfully more out-of-box value. Uh, and those are the things we're going to keep grinding and having grit and having obsession over. And they all will go towards a spot where more and more um, you're going to get higher value through the immersion. It's going to be less obtrusive to your head and, and more comfortable. And the value of using the real state of your head is going to make more sense because the value is going to start going up. But do you feel, pre- do you feel a sense of pressure at all from knowing that there are competitors in, in other big tech companies right now that are actively working towards this same, this same ideal I feel, in AR and MR? I'm excited about it, to be honest with you. Um, I don't spend time. I don't come into work every day thinking about what competitors are doing. I come into work every day thinking about what our customers are doing. Right. And, and spending time with our customers and understanding what are their needs. And the thing that motivates all of us at Microsoft um, is that idea that we can empower um, any one of these people and enterprises to achieve more through our technology. That's what ultimately yields the transformative industry leading products that we work on. And that's the reason why we're leading, have been and hopefully will continue to lead um, in this space. The thing that makes me excited to know that every other big company is trying to catch up to our technology um, is because it makes us right, um, right? To, the, to that hype cycle versus transformative. If still in this day and age, we were the only people working on it and the only people investing in it, you start wondering, right? We've been working in this, if you count Connect into it for 11 years. If 11 years later, we're the only people that still believe in this, um, that might, who knows, maybe not, but that might concern me. The fact that now it's no, I, when I speak with people, you know, when we first announced HoloLens and started talking about it in 2015 and 2016, most people would look at you a little bit weird. Nowadays, this go around when I talk to anyone, it's something that people are much more comfortable with because there's much more of an ecosystem of people that are working on it. Um, so from that perspective, I'm excited. Um, at the end of the day, um, I'd like to see hundreds, if not billions of these devices in the world, ours and everybody else's. And at that point, it will have become a transformative new secular trend in computing. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So while we were readying this story, and as it was publishing, another story emerged about the HoloLens. That's right. And Wired did report on this as well this week. More than 100 employees under a group named Microsoft Workers for Good sent a signed letter to Satya Nadella, the CEO, and President Brad Smith, demanding that the company stop working with its on its tech contracts with the military, um, and specifically called out HoloLens. So last, no- last November, it was reported that Microsoft had signed a contract with the US Department of the Army. This contract was worth nearly half a billion dollars. And the contract was for HoloLens, basically, to use it to train sh- soldiers for combat. Um, but Satya Nadella is not backing down. He later this week released a statement. And he told CNN Business that we made a principled decision that we're not going to withhold technology from institutions that have elected in democracies to protect the freedoms we enjoy. So military contracts with tech companies, it's a, it's a big story these days. But to the point of the workers, a lot of them say they didn't sign up for this. They didn't sign up to code for weapons. They signed up to build products for consumers, and then that technology ends up getting utilized in different spaces. What's your guys' take on this? Well, I mean, if you think about, like, what we know the vision, the Microsoft's vision for HoloLens is, it's, you know, people who work in factories and people who work in maintenance, right? So when I first heard that military, uh, the military would be signing up to use HoloLens, my first thought was not that soldiers were putting it on so that it could train them to, like, you know, target practice and, like, you know, kill the enemy more efficiently. It was that the people who repair the Jeeps and repair the tanks and repair the heavy equipment would be using it uh, as, like, a, a, a augmented reality um, instruction manual, like a repair manual kind of thing. Now, of course, maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm giving uh, the military too much of the benefit of the doubt. However... Um, I think also that the employees, if they don't want their stuff being used at all in the military, like even if you're just using it to repair tanks for somebody who doesn't believe in war and doesn't believe in, you know, a lot of the country's um, military foreign policies, that's still a step too far. So good on them. 
And I think, um, you know, Sacha should probably consider his employees' opinions about this more so than the dollars that it brings into the company. Oh, but the dollars are so alluring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no, you, Lauren, you're absolutely right. We've seen a lot of tech companies facing this kind of heat from their employees over the past year. Um, Google has seen this not just in their military contracts, but also in sort of the way that it handles um, harassment claims, for example, um, or the projects that it takes on for the government outside of the military. Um, and I think something that was encouraging in the past year is seeing how much this sort of collective bargaining, if you will, um, actually wields influence on CEOs and companies and changes the way that they make decisions about how their products are used. Um, and so I think it is perhaps a little disconcerting to see <laughs> a case where a CEO is saying, too bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. I also wonder what their employment contracts are like. Totally. I, don't, I don't know, but is it expressed to them explicitly mm-hmm. when they take on a job? By the way, we may be, we may be using this technology, this product you're working on for military purposes. I don't know that. And maybe that would change things so that a potential employee could upfront make the call about what they feel comfortable working on. Mm-hmm. Well, on to happier news. Let's do some recommendations. <laughs> yeah, let's do, wanna, do recommendations. Do you want to you go first, Ariel? Sure, I'd love to go first. Um, this week I am recommending a book. It's called Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials by Malcolm Harris. Um, and this was a book that was recommended to me by a friend um, who insisted that I read it so we could discuss. Uh, <laughs> and I love it when people do that because I, I, I love having a little personal book club. Um, but this is one that I actually now have started insisting other people read because I want to discuss it with more and more people. Mm-hmm. It's, um, as far as I can tell, the sort of first sweeping look at the millennial generation written by someone who is in fact a millennial um, and who starts to unpack unpack why millennials are the way they are because of uh, contextual things like the economy or um, sort of uh, realities of work or parenting. Um, it's not all avocado toast and student loans. <laughs> um, and Malcolm Harris is a very serviceable writer. He is very clean and easy to follow in his argumentation. Um, and yeah, I just found it really interesting. It's it's the kind of book that I don't agree with everything that was in it, but it's a book that it kind of can't stop talking to other young people about. And I think that is like the best praise you can give to something is that it's it's on your mind and Fully. it's something you want to discuss with other people. So what's one of the key insights that you've gotten from it so far? Well, the sort of main argument is that um, millennials are the way they are because of late stage capitalism, uh, which is a fun word. (laughs) But uh, one of the chapters that I found very compelling is about the way that our generation has been trained to uh, work and to make a product since basically kindergarten. And there are all these interesting examples in there of um, you know, kindergartens that had like a school play every year and it was like a really nice way for the kids to just be creative and have fun, like play, like those kinds of activities getting replaced with the need to have every single kid being up to reading level so they can pass the test because if they don't pass the test then they won't get into the right high school and if they don't get into the right high school they won't get into the right college and if they don't get into the right college they're never going to join the workforce. No, I'm getting sweaty just Yeah, and I think it's it's laid out in this interesting way where I think a lot of people my age are like, "Huh. That is scary but also feels correct that our whole lives have been this um sort of lead up to being like a producer, a person who participates in the capitalist economy. Um, And that that sort of warped a lot of the ways that we think about um, work, life, money, creativity, and so forth. Hmm. Anyway. Sounds grim. It's bleak. If you want to feel good about not being a millennial, I would encourage you to read it. I will read it, um, but because because I'm a Gen Xer, I'm going to read it ironically. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course, of course. Um, what's your recommendation, Gen Xer? Uh, so my recommendation is a book that Lauren gave me for my birthday last month, and it's called Barbarian Days by William Finnegan. And good old Bill Finnegan, uh, he is a writer. He's like a war correspondent. Uh, he writes a lot about politics for The New Yorker for decades. And this book is about surfing. It's his memoir of his life in the sport of surfing. 
And uh, Lauren is a surfer. I am a, an ex-surfer. So generous of you to say that. <laughs> Lauren is a person who paddles out on a board and makes a fool of herself. <laughs> Continue. I do that too, although I haven't done that in a while. But um, it's a really so it's a really great book. And the thing, like going into it, you know, I don't necessarily read books about sports ever. Um, but this is not really a book about sports as much as it is about sort of a passion in life, just like, uh, the passion of writing, the passion of music, you know, surfing for somebody who writes about it as eloquently as William Finnegan does, uh, is a, like a heartfelt artistic passion. It's not necessarily about getting better at something. It's about something, it's about doing something because it fills a hole in your life. It's really just incredible. It's also, it's a travel book. Um, it starts in the, I guess, early 60s. He's in California, and then he goes to Oahu, then he goes to Maui, and then he goes all throughout the South Pacific searching for waves. He goes to Australia and lives there near a crazy surf break. He goes to um, South Africa, uh, and then he goes to Montauk. Uh, it's really just incredible. It's Everything is very richly described, uh, the travel experiences, the surfing experiences, the relationships that he has with the men and the women in his life, um, and the political situation in all the places that he visits are very vividly painted. Mm -hmm. The book won a Pulitzer Prize, uh, and it's a New York Times bestseller. So, I mean, you've probably heard of it. It's called Barbarian Days. Um <laughs> Anyway, I really, really liked it. And Lauren, I have to thank you for giving me that book. You're welcome. I'm like, I like it. 20 pages from the end of it. And mm -hmm. I'm the type of person who like once I'm about 60 pages from the end of the book, I'm like, all right, stop everything. Leave me alone. I'm going to finish it because I can taste the end, you know. But uh, I was doing that today. But then like I had a little crisis where like the cat was freaking out and I was running late. So I had to stop reading. I'm going to finish it tonight. But I have to thank you for recommending this book to me. Because um, it has really like ignited a lot of stuff that I hadn't thought about in a long time, and uh, it's just a really great read. I really identify with it. The one caveat, I think you can tell me since you've read it, mm -hmm. kind of a dude book. Oh yeah, I got that <laughs> vibe, especially in the first, maybe the first uh, two thirds of it. Yeah, but certainly the first third of it, absolutely. And you just get the sense too that these young guys like had maybe no clue how to treat women properly. Yes. And, but maybe, you know. Which yeah. he fully admits at yes. every step. Yes. But of does. course, you know, he doesn't he doesn't use that to excuse his behavior. He also right. doesn't go into great detail about his bad behavior. He just mm -hmm. says like, yeah, well, you know, because I was a bonehead. Right. And it's right. like, well, tell us how you were a bonehead. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I was really struck by the remarkable detail with which Bill Finnegan describes waves that he surfed like 30 years ago. He must have kept fantastic surf journals, just jotting everything down, getting in from a session, because I'm like, that is just, wow, that's incredible to remember that. I mean, I guess I could see how sometimes you remember like that one good, good wave you really yeah. caught on a certain day. And now like thanks to Instagram, I can remember certain days because I've got this photo album of things. But um, <laughs> but like, yeah, it's really remarkable. And he also has the benefit. I mean, he's the added benefit of having this endless summer like experience, but with the right amount of time and perspective having passed. I would recommend Barbarian Days to anybody, even if yeah. you're not a surfer. You're totally right. It speaks to a passion and a sort of spirit that's not necessarily tied to the sport itself. And just beautiful writing. Mm -hmm, when absolutely he's writing about beautiful. the feeling of surfing and what it's like and mm -hmm. you know the his his what's going through his head while he's like trying to catch it it's just amazing, mm -hmm. really good. Yeah. Anyway, enough of my yapping. What's your recommendation? I recommend Getting out and surfing, if you can. It's been a long time. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a good time right now. Oh, you mean uh, uh, For a long time for me. Yeah. Because the last time I went out, I get... Anyway. <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> Ended up at the walk-in. Okay. I recommend Russian Doll on Netflix. Yes. If you haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, Ariel. You yes. are in for a treat. It is starring and written by it. Natasha Leone. Leone? Leone? Am I saying that correctly? Sorry, Natasha. Leon. She's here right now. She's saying it in this really gravelly voice. Like, get it together, girl. Uh, it's also co-written by Amy Poehler. Uh -huh. um, Chloe Sevigny is in it as a guest star. I mean, uh -huh. it's like, it's fantastic. And she is in this endless Groundhog Day-like loop of death. It start, every episode starts off at her birthday party. She's in the bathroom at her birthday party. And by the end of the evening, she has died in some way. And she has to figure out why this is happening. And it's very good. It's very, it's darkly funny. Mm-hmm. Mike and I were discussing the ending the other day. P 
people have mixed reactions to the ending. I personally Which, liked it. Mm-hmm, me too. Um, but others found it not so satisfying. I think maybe, perhaps it could have gone the route of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where she wakes up and her memory of everything is kind of obliterated, and then mm-hmm. you just to kind of find her way back to it. But instead, it's t- it's tied up pretty neatly, I think. It is. And in fact, you can read a story on Wired.com written by Peter Rubin about the debate on the Internet and the uh, dissatisfaction of many vocal people on the Internet about the about the ending of the show. Mm-hmm. Those people who I should note are incorrect. <laughs> yes, totally wrong. Uh, did I mention it's on Netflix? It's on Netflix. Watch it. Binge watch it. It's a good yeah. binge watch. Yeah, that's my recommendation. I'm going to watch this weekend if I can. Oh, so good. Fantastic music, too. Whoever yeah. was the the um, what do they call that person the musical uh, music supervisor who is ever the whoever was the music supervisor on Russian Doll should get uh, an, a streaming Emmy or whatever that is. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. Um, uh, let's tell everybody how they can find us on Twitter. Lauren, I am at Lauren Good with an E at the end. Every day I wish I had the handle with an E at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I am at part esoteric and I am at snack fight and you can talk to all of us uh, at the Twitter handle at gadget lab and we will be back next week with more fun news and recommendations and thank you <laughs>